Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, our podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson, joining you again from Union Station in St. Louis, Missouri, where we're recording another episode from the 2023 ILEDA Conference. And I've, I've heard our hosts say that ILEDA is like a family reunion. But for me, being my first time at all, it's like walking through Disney World for the first time because instead of saying, oh, look, there's Mickey, there's Donald. I'm over here saying, look, there's Joe Willis, there's Kim Schlau, all these people we've had on the podcast. But because we record a majority of these episodes online, virtually through you know video chats, I've never met these folks in person. It's kind of a surreal experience, Michael Warren. It's I'm able to make it tangible now. And, and, and it's a big conference, not only in terms of numbers, but the, the fact that this is the 20th ILEDA conference. And, and when you think about the impact that the conference has had over 20 years, it's a great place to be. I tell you, what, we walked in yesterday and the first person we, we saw was Brian Willis. And I wasn't sure that it was him because I've only seen him on video screen. And I turned to our producer, Aaron, and I said, I, th- I think that was Brian Willis. <laughs> I wasn't sure, you know. But, but it's funny because I have the same reactions. Oh, there's Brian. You know, oh, there's Kevin Davis. Oh, my and Brian Hill I saw. And, I, you know, it's all these people. It's really kind of cool. Yeah, it's 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 been a blast so far. And I'm looking forward to our conversation today uh, because this is another one of the guys that actually uh, I was in the hotel lobby. I'm like, oh, it's Chief. And go over. And, and it, it literally is like this long lost reunion. I can't explain how not disappointing, but a letdown it is when the conference is over and we go back to our respective homes, not because home's bad, but because you you lose that proximity and that proximity is powerful. Yeah. And it's, you know, people that you only get to see a certain time, a few handful times out of the year, maybe once or twice, and then you don't get to see them again. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. So, so why don't you go ahead and bring on our guest here? Uh, I'm excited about this one. And I think you're going to enjoy our conversation. I today. think so too. Yeah. Today's guest recently retired as chief of police for the Wellington Police Department in Ohio, where he served in that position since 2014. Started his career in the Berlin Heights and Amherst Police Departments, but spent a majority of his career at the Maple Heights Police Department, where he received a number of awards, including two for valor. He's a member of the International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association, and he joins us today in Midway Suite 11 at this year's 2023 ILEDA Conference. It's our pleasure to welcome Chief Tim Barfield. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. Hey, hey Brent, I just have to point out that you can tell uh, the, the veterans here, and I mean the true veterans, because they are able to do conference nights and still get up and do something in the morning. <laughs> because some of these folks, dude, I'm not available until noon at least, you know, but the chief is a professional. So yeah, you can, that's one of the ways you can tell. Yeah. He's up early with us this morning. Yeah. A lot of these folks are, well, you have to wait till after <laughs> noon or so. I can't move that early. <laughs> hey, chief, we really appreciate you agreeing to be on. And uh, I'm excited to talk about an illustrious career. And, and you don't like using words like that, but that's the, that's the way that it is. So Brent said 42 years, 42, over four decades. When you look back, does it feel like 42 years? It was a blink of an eye. How, how can you call 42 years a blink of an eye, though? What, yeah. what made it go so quickly? Well, you'll see. You know, it's interesting because I remember um, I started in Berlin Heights and Amherst. I did a, you know, about a year in those places, uh, but then um, got hired full time in, uh, in Maple Heights. And I remember when I got on there, 
And, you know, they, they, you got these veteran guys and they're talking about, you know, got 25 years. I'm like, 25 years? Like, I'll never make 25 <laughs> years. Well, like, I've gone way past that, you know. But um, but it is a blink of an eye. I mean, uh, my, my son's on the job. He's 40 years old. And I remember holding him in my hands, you know, one arm when he was a little itty-bitty baby. So it does. It time flies and, and here i was all full of hope and joy today and when you just said that your son is 40 years old because i've had the honor of meeting him it's like son of a gun i'm old too <laughs> that's, that's a bunch of crap take me back if you will what was young officer barfield how was that guy different than the guy that's sitting in front of me today well in some ways very much different in a lot of ways the same you know i you, you, you say, you know, what was that young guy like? Full of piss and vinegar, right? Oh, man. And uh, in many ways, like people say, man, you're like the energized bunny, right? You know, I just, I go, go, go. I mean, I, that's just me. I just who I am, but that's what, how people see me. And, and um, you know, even at the end of my career, like a, a very pro, you know, enforcement, pro, you know, go out there and do good police work. And a lot of people don't expect that. They, you know, I, I remember when I first came on and some of those veterans are like, well, slow down. <laughs> you know, in many ways, you know, still love the job, love doing what we do. But a lot of things have changed. I, I you know, we were chatting a little bit yesterday and I, I said, uh, you know, what, when I became a policeman, you could shoot a fleeing felon. <laughs> and, and what was my response to that? <laughs> With your revolver. Yeah. Because that also <laughs> well, <has> changed. <laughs> yes. Everybody had revolvers back yep. then. Everybody. And, uh, you know, uh, th there's a big change right there, right? Like, I remember when guys would take it, you know, everybody had an extra box of ammo in the car just in case. But, you know, you had a six shooter <laughs> and two speed loaders. So, you know, some total of 18 rounds, you know. And I mean, we got the job done generally with that but you know things change and now you've got that much in one magazine absolutely so it's a huge change well and, and if we're honest with each other if you're a young officer that that's full of uh, of this energy to go out and do enforcement maple heights was a pretty good place for you to work if that was what you were looking for wasn't it yeah it was a it was a busy place if you like enforcement if you like to go out there and do that job uh yeah it was it was a happening place. Now, of course, that place has changed a lot. But when I first went there, you know, I, I remember um, I remember in Amherst, and I remember the guy sitting around talking about, remember that chase we had? Yeah, back in 72. I mean, we had, I had 20 in my first year in Maple Heights. I mean, and like good, like not, not like even the kind you had, can have today, right? right? But we had chases and you know, talk about that piss and vinegar. Yeah. Right? I mean, wow. <laughs> Geographically, where was this located in the state of Ohio? So Maple Heights is an inner ring suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. And it sits on the fourth district, which is the most violent district in the state of Ohio. So. Gotcha. And so um, talking about differing perspectives at the beginning versus the end of your career, Officer Barfield is excited about 20 chases. Chief Barfield is saying, oh, for the love of everything that's good and right, we got to do these reviews. We got all this stuff. going." It's one of the things that I think that a lot of young leaders struggle with is that as they move through the ranks, changing the perspective your perspective has to change somewhat because you're responsible for a greater level. But the one thing that has been been my experience is that people like you, true leaders, while their perspective change, the care for the person that you're supervising doesn't change. You have a tremendous love for the people that you work with and that work for you. Uh, absolutely. And, 
you know, you, you, you talk about, you know, how perspective changes. One of the things you can't um, forget as those things change is you can't forget where you came from. So you have to understand why somebody wants to have that chase. I mean, we, we kind of train hunting dogs, right? And then we tell them, don't go after the duck. Don't go after the duck. Like, are you crazy? That's what we wanted, people. We just have to, what we've had to do, we've had to learn, and we talk about all these changes, right? But we've had to learn to be smarter. You know, we didn't have, like today there's a policy, like if you carry a pen, you have to have a tactical pen policy, right? <laughs> we have policies. We didn't have policies on that. We didn't have a pursuit policy. We had an unwritten pursuit policy. They didn't leave the, the city, but you know, we didn't have a written policy. Today, everything's under policy. I'm not sure it's always good, but it's necessary. So one of the problems with having policies and having that many policies, is it really possible for an officer to, to know them all, know the intricacies of all the policies? Because we're asking an awful lot of them in terms of retention at that point, aren't we? Sure you are. And, you know, one of the things that gets forgotten so quickly by the lawyers, by the chiefs, by the, the people at the top is human performance, oh. right? When I went to Wellington, now we, we, we've redone all the policies, but when I went there, the policies had been written in 1995. So I went there in 2014. I don't know, uh, that's like 19 years, right? And they hadn't changed. But I went and looked at the use of force policy. Well, all of them, all of them combined because everything was a different use of force policy. Over 50 pages. Now you expect a guy who's in a traumatic, fast changing environment to remember all this nonsense, it's crazy. Anybody that writes policy should write them at one or two pages, especially for the critical thing. If you, if you want to talk about a, a search policy, we got time on a search. You know, make it 50 pages if you want, but you can't do that on the critical stuff. For, for evidence submission. Hey, if you want to make that yeah. thing 18 pages because it's a checklist, hey, here's the steps you need to go through. That's something that can be done. I'll always think about uh, Sully landing on the Hudson. There was no checklist. We didn't have time for a checklist because it had to be done and it had to be done now. And you only get one shot at it. And I think that that is what people forget. Yeah, absolutely. They do. And, and uh, again, that's that's one of those changes. Um, you, you talked about the, you know, the, the young officer, now the chief, right? That's one of the changes I tried to never forget. I tried to never forget that we have to keep it not simple because we're talking about simple people, simple because when you talk about human performance, the mind can only do so many things. And, and if anybody's listening to this podcast, they know I'm a huge proponent of training because if you want them to be able to consider a greater number of things in that type of environment, then you must provide a greater depth and breadth of training because that's what frees up the brain to be thinking deeply at a moment like that. Yes, and what's the one thing that we don't do enough of? Uh, too often in a profession that I love, not only do we not do it often enough, we don't do it properly. It's not just a matter of training. It has to be effective training in order to make those differences. Yes, and you know, you, then you've got the politicians and stuff that, that mandate. So in Ohio, you know, they'll, they'll mandate uh, certain trainings and Almost always the training isn't garbage, just nonsense, check the box stuff. And if we're going to waste our time, training is never a waste of time. But if we're going to train, let's not waste it, right? Yes. Let's make it as valuable and as useful to our people as possible. And I wish the politicians would understand that. I want to ask this of both Chief and uh, Mike. You both come from law enforcement. Was there a time, was there a case in your career where you went through a certain situation and you thought, man, that was your light bulb moment of, 
I need to be trained better right here. I, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that there's not one that comes to mind uh, immediately except for or a certain at, point in time yeah, in your career as a trainer that there, there was a time where we, we started in too many agencies firearms training quote unquote is done in a range in a booth with the officer standing still and just not making decisions they're they're just shooting and, and so when when i was I, and i was very fortunate my agency was very supportive when i brought this stuff to them we started doing all our shooting in our indoor range down range out of the booths we we could only shoot one or two people at a time because there was so much movement and it was dynamic because that's what our people needed to do on the street and we had an officer that was involved uh, in a shooting he had to move a lot out of necessity and he was able to do it and he effectively put rounds down range and when he came and talked to me afterwards he goes being able to do that was a result of the training and that was like that's how you know you're making a difference and it was like okay i know it works now i intellectually knew that it worked before that but now i know i've got something tangible to show that and it just made me want to do it better and more often for you I just want to comment first on what you're talking about, like the range thing. So we, we changed also. We even plated the, the walls in our range so that we could <laughs> move and shoot. <laughs> and then, we, by the way, oh, I had to put, we did too. And, and that's of necessity as well, yes. isn't it, Chief? <laughs> yeah, because concrete doesn't work as well as, uh, you know, ballistic steel. But, um, you know, in the beginning of my career, we were shooting, you know, static targets from the booth. Not only that, but the first time I, this, this new rookie, you know, with, uh, you know, a couple of months on the first time I dumped my ammo on the floor, they're like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> we had coffee cans and those coffee cans still exist on that range today. Not, not for the, they exist to now pick it up off the floor. But at the time you didn't dump your brass on the floor. You dumped it in the can. Talk about training scars. Right. That's terrible. So you want to know what that that thing was for me that changed everything dramatically. I was involved in a use of force incident. And because of that use of force incident, I was fired from the Maple Heights Police Department. And nobody at that time really knew the law, right? It's just because somebody decided what I did was wrong. It turns out, I would argue I, I wasn't wrong. I won my job back. And there was also an incredible leadership failure at that point. The two things that I have forced myself to work more on because of that is leadership and use of force. Those two are, if, if I have an expertise and I don't, but if I did, those are the, those are, that's my heart, right? Uh, of all the things I teach and I, and I, mental health is such a huge thing too, but use of force and leadership because I was stabbed and it hurt. And I look now and I said, I will never allow that to happen to me or anybody else again. Mm. I think it's important. A lot of the stuff we talk about isn't really uh, saying that something's good or it's bad, but it's the way that it is. And the way that it is in many agencies, the people that reach the top tier of leadership in the agency didn't come up through the training ranks. They, they certainly didn't come up through the use of force training ranks. And so they lack expertise in that, that field. And 
if you don't understand how decisions are made under stress, but you have been tasked with evaluating and making decisions on decisions that were made under stress, as a leader, you have to recognize you're at a disadvantage not having that expertise. Yeah, well, you know, we, then we're going to get into that training section, right? It's interesting. I'll, I'll have people, um, when I left and, and during my time as chief, I had a lot of people say, man, you're one of the most progressive chiefs I know. I was one of the oldest guys, <laughs> right? And I, and I will attribute that. I will tell you, I attribute that not only to that life-changing event for me, but to Ailita. Because the, the front lines of stuff that we're teaching and learning here today will be the core instruction three, four, five years from now. The, the stuff here is radical, at times, and now it's mainstream. Hmm. You know, it's a big, it's a big change. Yeah. Uh, at, at opening ceremonies, uh, Brian Willis, a former guest on, on here, he talked about he challenged the people attending this conference. You need to go into these classes with an open mind. And, and go into these classes that that maybe you're going in thinking I don't agree with this based upon the course description that I read. But just like the chief said, like you said, it's this oftentimes becomes the basis, the foundation of training programs in agencies down the road. Yeah, well, the mental health issue. Oh, it was, yeah. Talk about huge changes. Uh, you know, we talked about, I could shoot a fleeing felon, right? When I became, you know, the, the choir practice yes. was how we dealt with stress. Going out and having a drink. I, I When I teach mental health, one of the stories, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a brief issue here, but I had a very traumatic event happen on the midnight shift. And I went home and I was a young policeman and uh, I wasn't a, a, a hard liquor drinker guy, right? At best, I was a beer guy, but we couldn't afford to have that in the house because I was a poor <laughs> cop. Um, but back then at Christmas, companies would drop off cases of booze and you'd get called in the chief's So I had 22 bottles of booze. I didn't even drink, right? But I came home and my wife and my, uh, my only two kids I had at the time were gone. You know, it was a midnight shift. I came home. When I, I, I woke up, because I just kept waking up, I just couldn't get this out of my head. I woke up and I couldn't figure out what to do. And, and I knew what the answer was, because that's what you do when you have a problem and you have a drink. Hmm. Um, whiskey and Kool-Aid don't work, I'm just saying, um, <laughs> for the record. But that being Not said- Not for lack of trying. <laughs> well, I, I did because I couldn't, I couldn't get it out of my head. And you couldn't say, I'm struggling with this, right? And it's not that you wanted to, but you're looking for a lifeline. I just need this to go away for right now. I need, I need something to help me- Yes. Stress reliever, yes. basically. And we talk about that today, you know? And we're not where we need to be, but we're having the conversations. And those conversations started here seven, eight years ago. And now they're being mandated by states. You have to do this. We were talking about that stuff seven, eight years ago here. Mm -hmm. yeah, but, but you, you know, it, it's one of those things where trainers by and large are very dedicated to their craft. They're very dedicated to the profession and they will often teach things with good intentions but we find out that, that what we were being taught wasn't the best way of doing it. And that was one of the things, because w when you started, because I, I know it had to be when you started, because when I started, uh, we were taught at the academy that having emotions was unprofessional. Hmm. It doesn't make you unprofessional. It makes you human. And, and when you don't have the tools to deal with it, you have this compounding effect that affects you not only professionally, but also personally. Yes. In fact, the, the, the class I'm teaching here this week 
is going to specifically deal with emotions and stress. And quite honestly, they come from the same place, right? So, yes. but emotions, you know, I, uh, an example for, you know, for those that, that, that can remember, I think probably most people in this room, but those can remember uh, Dragnet, right? Yeah. Sergeant Friday, yeah. emotionless. Yes. And we teach, it's, it's a coping mechanism for us, right? We don't deal with our emotions, but if you think the, about the fact that if we can deal with ours, and the people that we're dealing with, if we can deal with their emotions, we can liberate our lives and make them better too. Yes. And it's a top-down thing because I saw a video, there was an incident last year where uh, you were during a press conference, you were uh, visibly emotional. And when I saw that, I wasn't used to seeing someone in your position be that emotional but it was effective because you were talking about your people and it's a top-down thing where if someone in your position shows that then someone down here is able to do that as well. It's a leadership thing. Yeah. Well, I, again, I, I think that we need to liberate our emotions. I think if there's, if there's one thing, if there's, if there's for me, the front line of training today has got to be, we've got to first off face it and talk about emotions and then I'm not saying we should always let them all go, but the first part of emotional management is recognizing that you have emotions because, you know, we think that we are um, intellectual people with emotions. We're emotional people that can be intellectual. Yes. You know, it, that, that, that's the distinction right there. We, we are emotional beings. Yes. And denying it and suppressing it. I will tell you, I think it's one of the things that hurts us. And, I, and another, you know, we talk about this connection with the police and the public. I will tell you, I think this is the crux of, of dealing with it because we look like and act like robots. And then people say, well, you don't act like people. Well, because we don't act like people. Right. <laughs> Brent, let me, let me ask you, uh, non-law enforcement experience, right? When you watched that press conference, did you view the chief as not professional because there was an emotional component to the press conference. No, it's something you just said. It made him human. It made him, yes, a respected member of law enforcement, but it's like, he's a guy with emotions. He's a human being. He's a fellow person that- That has through, value. Yes, he's going through, he has the same, maybe a different situation, but he's experiencing the same emotions that I have felt for you know whatever situation I've gone through. And you can identify Correct. with him. And that's exactly what we're talking about, Chief. The, the, the relationship between the community and the police, you can't have relationships with inanimate objects. And too often we try to act like an inanimate object. Yes. And then we say, why aren't we connected with the public? You know? So yeah, I think emotions is one of those things that, um, you know, it's just started to bubble up, but um, I, it's going to be one of my main issues. And, it, and again, it's going to come up this week. So, all right. I have to give another perspective if I could. So I'm going to give you the perspective of somebody who worked in law enforcement. When I watched that press conference, I thought to myself, that's the kind of leadership we need. I can only imagine what the officers involved in that incident must have been thinking when they saw their leader get up there and speak like that. And what I thought was, I'd follow that guy right there anywhere. That's what I always say. I always want a leader who will uh, go in the trenches before me and not ever ask something of me that he himself wouldn't do. And that's what I saw when I saw you speak. It's like you were up there at top first leadership. 
Oh, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. Well, well Chief, I have to throw a, a shout out to, to the, a couple of guys that work on the podcast here uh, because they are musicians and they are music fans extraordinaire. And we've been having the nice thing about us being together is having these in-person discussions. And we were actually talking about the emotions that music bring out in people. And it's ironic to me that as a society, we are seeking ways to become emotional. We go to movies because they have an emotional impact on us. We listen to music and go to concerts because of the impact they have on us. But when we start talking about the profession, all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're supposed to turn it off. Professional athletes, you know, one of the best characteristics that they can have is that they're passionate. But when it comes to our, our, our first responder professionals, internally, we have this thing that, hey, you know what? Hey, if you've got emotions, then, then you're out of control. Check them at the door. Yeah. yeah. We've, we're doing better, but we have to do even better. Sure, but we're wrong. And again, I attribute to so many things. We've had this discussion, right? But when, when we begin to, first off, understand that we're emotional people, right? And then learn to control those but not hide them, we will begin to connect with the public again. You know, we, we have been that Joe Friday mm-hmm. almost my entire career, and that's got to change. And I think we can do it in a very professional way. I think that you'll find more dynamic officers and more dynamic officer encounters with people when we recognize that we and they have emotions. We go into somebody's house, when it's the worst. Right. Now, those emotions aren't always good, but recognize him, not punishing them for it, acknowledging it, and then helping them through that. That's the connection. Well, we, we certainly shouldn't be surprised that they're there, that the emotions are there when we go with those things. Well, and I, I'm guilty of this, suppressing emotions or suppressing feelings. Uh, I I'm, do that a lot. And then what happens? You keep suppressing, you push it down, you push it down, you push it down. Eventually, you're going to blow up. And my wife will attest to that, that I, I am guilty of that, where I will just push down. And then all of a sudden, I'll just unload on her. And, you know, either that's uh, at work or if that's in your personal life, it's going to happen eventually. Those emotions will come through. Well, let me take you to some videos. Pick out any one you want. What do you have? Is the emotion blowing up, right? When you see somebody going, listen here, you little... Right? That's, that was that suppressed emotion. It's because we don't acknowledge it. But we're fools, because we are emotional people, right? Mm-hmm. We, 90%, I think, of what we do is based on emotion. So let's acknowledge it. Let's tame it. And, and, and in others, recognize it. And then let's connect with people. What is leadership? It's relationships. Relationships are about emotion. <clears throat> I'm going to try and say this next thing without tearing up. Okay. Mm-hmm. As I said, as said before, the, these guys ha- have a podcast called Crossing the Streams. And in one of the episodes, I get mad at him sometime for introducing me to it. There, there was a song by Lori McKenna, and the song is called "Even When You're My Age." And, you and me to tear up now, no, dude. I'm telling you, I told you because every time I hear the song, it happens. But th- this lady singing a song to, to her kids and saying, "Hey, listen, you know, uh, you're always going to be my baby, even when you're my age." And it affects me at such an emotional level. And the reason why I bring it up now is because we're talking about emotions, but also because you're a parent that has a kid working in this profession. Mm. And I would be willing to bet that you worry about your son 
even though he's 40. I do. But I'll tell you, that also, um, I don't want to consider my people as my kids, but every breath, I worry about them all the time. You know? we, we can recognize that from parents, that that's the type of feelings we should have. But as a leader, those feelings should be very similar to the people that we've been entrusted with. We should be caring about their mental health, their, their, their physical health, their well-being, their families, if we're doing it right. And if we're not, we're not leading, we're managing. I agree. Tell me what the name of your class is this week. They heard I lead on becoming knights. So what would it be safe to say that you truly view law enforcement as a noble profession? Noble and honorable. And I address that every time I teach anywhere. I ask, I, I thank people to, for being involved in this noble and honorable profession. So, all right. So, and I think 42 years would qualify him as an expert on this profession. Wouldn't you, Brent? I would say so. All right. So I want to ask you a couple questions about some things that are going on in your state specifically. There has been a lot in the news about Ohio eliminating the physical fitness component of qualifying to be a police officer. What what are your thoughts on that proposal right there? So I think all officers ought to pay attention to that issue. I think I think that you need to be physically fit, mentally fit to do this job. I think that's an individual thing. I do think there should be a standard. Here's my problem. We expect a standard, but right after you come out of the academy, you can blow up, you can be overweight, out of shape, and nobody cares. So if we're going to do a standard, let's do a standard age graded whatever and hold it across the line. But if you're not going to do that, then waive the standard. I, I, I believe in a standard. I just think if we're not going to, if we're only going to enforce it when you come in, then it's a stupid standard. And the military model is that they do have that age graded uh, scale, uh, but everybody in the military takes an annual PT test to ensure that they are physically capable of doing the job that they're being paid to do. I agree with you. If it's a standard at the beginning, what, what changes in year two or what changes in year 20? I, I completely agree. There's also been talk of reducing the minimum age for someone to be a police officer. How do you view that particular introduction of, uh, did they introduce a bill on that? I, I, I haven't heard that they introduced a bill okay. on that. So what, what, what's your thoughts on that, uh, that, that proposal or that thought? Well, you know, we, we say you're an adult at 18. So I, again, this is one of these issues, right? It's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a struggle, right? You can go out and serve your, your country at 18. I can respect that. On the other hand, we, we just got talking about emotions, right? Are you emotionally developed enough to do this job? I started when I was 21. I don't think I was ready. I don't but, think I was ready to be a policeman. But at 21, you thought you were. Well, that's, of course I that, did. That's the problem, though. I mean, th there's this false sense. I mean, we've got a lot of people that think they're tactically sound. But you and I both know that that's a false belief. Right. So... Again, I, I guess if we're, if we're going to do this, no matter how we do it, we've got to start talking about emotional intelligence and we've got to start recognizing that elephant in the room and begin to address it. If we can address it, I think you have people that are younger than that. I'm not advocating for younger, but, <laughs> but people that are in connection with themselves that could do this job. The military takes 17-year-old kids. You can join at 17 as long as your parents sign and, and they can send you off to war, okay? But what they have in the military 
more often present leadership of somebody in a senior position. We used to have more of that in law enforcement. In most agencies back in the day, you rode two people in a patrol car. And oftentimes it was an older officer and younger officer. So you had that on-scene supervision, for lack of a better term. But you and I have talked about this before. There are administrative jobs that used to be done higher up in the chain of command that is now being pushed further and further down in our agencies. And you've got sergeants doing administrative work that lieutenants and captains used to do. And so their ability to get out in the field with those potential younger officers has been reduced. If we're going to do that, I think we have to readjust the leadership roles. Yes, and, and, and we're in a crisis in America and, and law enforcement, and nobody wants to do this job anymore. And so you can't even get enough people to work the streets. How are you going to get people to, you know, fill those roles and go out there and be there? Um, and, and so much of what we do in law enforcement, you, know, you say there were two-man cars, and that, that was true maybe in the bigger cities, but, you know, what, 70, 75% of, of police yep. departments across the country are small departments. I'm talking about 10 people. Yep. Right. Some are way smaller than that. So, so you're going to have this single officer response. You're going to have to deal with the emotional intelligence or people's ability to deal with things. And I, and I don't know what that age is. I just don't know because I'm not sure that 25 is on its own. And some people at 50 aren't very good at it. So the, the best protection that we can have for our profession when it comes to personnel is a good hiring process a good vetting process because when we get those people in here who aren't suited for the job that makes it much more difficult for people like you that are at the administration level yeah so one of the shortly before retiring i remember having a conversation with my boss about um you know we, we don't want to lower the standards folks we have nationally lowered the standards because there's less candidates so I, I don't care you can say you're not going to lower the standards it's already lowered you know, even if you had if you had a um, hundred candidates, if you get ten out of that, you're lucky. When I took Maple's test, over a thousand people took that test. Today, you can't get forty to take the test, and that's across the country. So, the standards are already lowered. If we don't start training more, and we don't put the money into training, but if we don't start training more, we're going to see greater and greater problems. And I'm not meaning this to be derogatory, but if the people we're bringing into the profession are not of the level that they were before, then we certainly can't reduce training. That, that, that calls for an increase in it, doesn't it? Of course, but I will tell you, 42 years. We do more training now than my entire career, but we haven't even scratched the surface of what we need to do. Uh, ma mandates, I will professionally acknowledge, are necessary. I mean, that there needs to be minimum training standards in states, and, and I would propose in America, but the mandates have to be meaningful and they have to be relevant and they have to be based on human performance and too often they're not. And so we're wasting those resources, that training time, the training dollars on stuff that is not effective. Yeah, well, again, it's because the politicians do this and the politicians just do check, they, they, they just feel good, okay? And so what we do is check the box stuff. And, and you know, in many places, people don't even want to train. Like we haven't even cultivated many officers that desire to train. We're, we're headed for some real problems if we don't throw some money at this issue. I want to talk about your work uh, in mental health. It was there, going back to what I asked earlier, was this something that you saw progressively over time uh, that 
you need to invest your time into, or was it a certain situation? Because mental health, even now, is it, there's a stigma around it. People don't like to talk about it. They don't like to admit they have problems with it. And to come out and actually have be working with uh, that issue, what was it for you that, that drew you to working uh, with mental health and that sort of thing? So it's the whole career, right? Um, I, I told you about early on this this thing that I had, uh, this incident that I had, and I, and I struggled with that. And I, and I have a couple of those. In fact, I, I used to think PTSD was nonsense until early on in my years here at ILEDA and Alexis Artwall, who used to present here quite regularly, she was a police psychologist. She's talking about this PTSD thing. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's just an excuse for somebody to retire early, blah, blah, blah. And as she starts to explain stuff, I started to realize that incident that I talked about, I, I won't go into the, the details of why, but I cannot eat fish sticks today hmm. because of that incident. And I have another one that I, I have problems with. And at least I was able to identify where those were. But we didn't talk about these things. And what I watch, I watch videos or I watch people on the street. And again, we suppress those, those emotions. We, we are in, in terrible environments all the time. And we see the worst of the worst. That takes a toll. It just became apparent to me that this is something we've got to, you know, begin to face and try to uh, unpackage and, and give some people some acknowledgement. The first time we ever did training in, in Wellington on mental health, this back eight years ago or whatever, and I got the fire and EMS to have their people come to. And the fire chief there uh, was completely supportive of this. G great guy, gets it, right? But you have the stigma. So after we did one of the trainings, one of the firemen came to the police station and wanted to talk to me. So I said, yeah, come on in. And we sit down. He says, uh, I just have to tell you, I know that you were involved in this. He says, I thought I was the only one. Mm -hmm. I thought I was the only one. You know, and we feel alone and we feel alone. We can't tell anybody else I'm suffering with this issue, right? Because especially in, in safety services, if you can't deal with that, you got to go. The point was, though, his chief was entirely behind us, supportive. He couldn't tell the chief because he was, you know, there's that subconscious thing that we have. You, we hear it now, you know, there's a, there's a tape that, uh, that uh, First Help has where an officer is talking about killing himself and he goes out in the garage and a wife calls the police department and bang, the gun goes off. Thank God he doesn't shoot himself. But on that phone call, she says, he's going to lose his job. You know, we're afraid to even ask for help. And, and that just compounds that problem more and more and more. We've got to make them understand that you can't do that. I have one of mine friends, one of my officers, um, had a lot of problems, three tours in a sandbox, brought a lot of junk back, and at one point attempted to harm himself. And uh, we protected him and eventually brought him back. And that was unheard of. Uh, you know, and great support from the administration to do that. Uh, and, and a lot of it had to do with, you know, explaining these things, but we've got to get to the point. I mean, there's a point where somebody can't do the job, but I don't think it's anywhere close to the line where we draw it today. Mm. And we've got to start understanding and explaining and making people feel like they're not the only one. That's why I think what we're doing right now is because there's somebody listening right now that heard you say that about that, uh, that, that fireman that came to you and they said, wow, that's me. Mm -hmm. You know, that somebody's hearing that right now and then maybe they'll go to their chief or whoever administration and say, I need help too. Or go to somebody. I mean, there's, there's, there are tons of people. Reach out to me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't care. It doesn't matter. There's tons of people that are willing to help you. But as a profession, we've got to get past this, this idea that somebody's weak because they struggle with, I mean, you know, it, the normal human 
only sees a dead body in a coffin. In law enforcement, it is so common. Like we have this gallows humor, like we joke about this stuff. It, when you have these conversations with people, the fire chief from Wellington and I were having lunch with somebody else. And we just have this conversation. We start talking about these gory bodies. And, and this guy finally says, stop, just stop. How can you do it? We didn't even realize we were doing it. We have normalized what's not normal, right? We have done it because we've dealt with it so many times. We've normalized it, but it's not. And that stuff comes back to haunt us. I, I want to ask you this. I, I believe you to be a man of strong faith. And, and so I want to ask you, how did that help you? as far as the mental health part of the job, because not, not everybody is a person of faith, but for those that are, there seems to be something that they can hold on to that makes it, I don't want to say easy, but makes it bearable. Yeah. So that's a whole other podcast, right? right. <laughs> but um, for me, I'm, I believe in Providence. I believe God's in control. I know, you know, this a few years ago, I, I lost my my childhood sweetheart, my wife of 40 years. And even during that, I just accepted that was God's will. I, I'm a cancer survivor. I accepted that was God's will, right? He's going to be in charge. That makes it easier. I also think there's some clear de delineation because, um, again, I'll be dealing with a little bit of this this week, but we have got to talk about evil and good. You know, we talk about bad people. There is evil in the world, and boy, we see it, right? We've, we've looked at evil in the eyes. There are people that just, they don't care. And so understanding evil and good, understanding we're going to get through this, you know, one way or another, having something to hold on to, some, some belief system, I, I think is critically important. Again, I think that's a whole other podcast, but I think it's critically important. And it's helped me get through those things, and it's also given me the strength to be courageous. When I think about, you know, you, you think about um, in the Civil War, Robert E. Lee and, and Stonewall Jackson were incredibly faithful men. Stonewall Jackson, they, they gave him the name because he would ride in front of his troops. And they said, there he stands like a stone wall. He had courage because he believed that he was taken care of. And I don't mean taken care of in a sense that, you know, I had a cancer. I mean, my, my wife, a faithful woman died of cancer. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking much longer term that we yes. are taken care of. And and their courage can come from that. Strength can come from that. I think religion is uh, uh, not talked about or taught as much as it should be. Well, I, I think because in the mental health realm, in law enforcement, what is lacking is that sense of peace. When you talk about going home after this incident and you can't sleep, you've got all these things going through. That's not a one time deal. You know, th there are times that, that that something happens, you can't go to sleep or, or, or it wakes you up early. For me, it, it just allows for the possibility, you know, of hope mm -hmm. and hope is lacking not only in our profession, but in society as a whole right now. You're right, though. The rationalizing, the normalizing of what we see, I think also goes on in society as well. And I think that a lot of times we don't want to admit that there is evil in the world because I don't want to admit that there's the possibility I live next door to evil. I mean, can you imagine being, you know, a Ted Bundy's next door neighbor? Right. It's easier to attribute that to some type of mental illness rather than the fact that that is a messed up human being with evil intent. Society's going to have to deal with those evil people. But that person, I, I don't know. I don't think 
yes, I think there was evil, but I don't think those people were born evil. I think uh, something had to happen along the way to uh, to turn them at some point. I, I believe, I, I believe as the chief does, that we all have an inclination to do things wrong, not, not, not serial killer stuff, but we have to teach kids to do right. And, and you're right. right. As society, when we don't handle our kids appropriately, we shouldn't be surprised by the activities they undertake when they get older. And then that's where people like the chief have to come in and they have to deal with them. And if we want to be safer as a society, then we have to do a better job on the front end. It's often too late on the back end and it makes society less safe. Yeah. And, and I just, and I bring that up as we're wrapping things up here because the chief has faced that evil for 42 years and facing that, that type of evil requires an incredible amount of courage. And I love listening to him speak because when he speaks, he speaks with a passion about this profession and the people in this profession. Because, Chief, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to come into this profession, especially right now, doesn't it? Yes. And we need good people. Oh, we need good people. So the people who come in, even the ones who maybe aren't as qualified as we hope they would be or that they maybe used to be, they're at least willing. Yes. And so what we have to do as trainers, and that's what this conference is all about, is doing a better job of en enabling them and empowering them to do what is necessary so society as a whole is a better place. I want to ask you, uh, as we come, kind of coming to a close, if you could go back and talk to the 21-year-old version of yourself, <laughs> what would you say to that person? A couple of things. One, be more courageous. We're tribal people and we want to fit in. And so we allow bad behavior to go on because we're afraid to say something. So we've got to be more courageous, number one. Number two, don't listen to the bad stuff, right? You got the complainers about everything. Don't get caught up in the negativity, right? There is a ton of good in the world, a ton of good people. We listen to the complaining and then we get dragged down in it. It's the emotional thing, right? <laughs> Misery loves company. But like, see the good in the world. It, it took me a while. I was that complainer. I was that guy that could sucked up in it. Look around. There's tons of good. If you want to see bad, you'll see bad. But if you want to see good, you'll see good. So see the good in the world. I just want to point out here because the chief made a great point. It has to be intentional on law enforcement because every time the radio goes off, you're being directed to the bad. Mm -hmm. Every time you're writing a police report, you're writing about the bad. And it's very easy to allow yourself to think that everything is bad. I think that it's harder today for our, our young officers, especially to see the good, because w when we talk about how unpopular law enforcement is, we're feeding into that everybody's bad thing. And it's not good for them physically. It's not good for them mentally. It's not good for them sticking around long term. And society needs to remember we need those folks. Yeah. And uh, like you said, Chief, if someone's listening and they need help, they can contact you. We'll put some links in the show notes where we can put some information about mental health and if folks need to reach yes. out and talk to somebody. That's where they can go and find that. And I think the, the thing that I want to end on today is what you said. It's so powerful. People that are listening, see the good. Mm. You know, that is such a powerful statement. And that's intentional. That's a point that was where making. Um, it is intentional. You have 
to look for the good, but you'll see it because you're right. We spend all of our time dealing with problems, but the truth of the matter is there's a whole world of really good things going on. So just stop and look at that and, and kind of keep it in perspective. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today. It's such an enlightening conversation and I, I love hearing you speak. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.